0: Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. It's uh, Matt Taylor again on the NHS 100K podcast. And today I am joined with Phil from uh, PJH Law. Um, Some of you will know Phil from his um, dealings with Dr. Sam White, which we'll talk about in the coming interview. So I'm gonna bring him in. Hi, Phil, thanks for joining me today. How are you getting on?
1: Fine, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure, mate. Thank you for joining me
0: today. So I'm sure you've just come off the back of the Bath conference. Uh, it was Bath, wasn't it? I think a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. that that had quite a, fi- a few high profile people there on the um, alternative narrative um, uh, path. I would say there was Malone there, and there was um, Peter McCullough, and there was there's quite a few people there. Um, did you recognise any of them or were you just blissfully unaware of what was going on in regards to how many high-profile people were actually there? you
1: You you just break break it up slightly. Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah,
0: I can hear you fine, mate. Yeah, I can hear you
1: fine. Yeah, Uh, yeah, um, I've recognised everyone. I wasn't there for the full weekend, only went down for the day. Um, Yeah, I mean... It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, in any health situation or professional judgment situation, uh, we, we should have a range of views. And we should have the ability to disagree with our colleagues, professional colleagues, whether clinical, legal, whoever they are, respectfully, but we're in a situation where we've got clinicians and scientists not in agreement with one another, and those who disagree with the alleged consensus are sort of um, shamed and professionally pilloried and made to feel uncomfortable and name-called. So. It's not been a good environment the last couple of years for having an open, honest debate about stuff. And I think even if we think about our friends and family, um, you know, I don't know what, uh, what your situation is, Matt, but I've got friends and family who are very much into COVID um, and masked up, socially distanced, locked down, had to grab some booster. Um, whereas um, my immediate family and some of my close friends haven't done all that, but it's not a subject where you can have a free and frank discussion because what the government have done and the media is polarise the debate so that if if you're not going along with a public health measure like lockdown or socially dis or masking you're some sort of covidia and if you're a bit hesitant about the vax um you're an anti-vaxxer and irrational um so all, all these sort of psychological messages um, Come between uh, our family and friends, so it's been quite a toxic environment. Um, because proper debates and open discussion haven't really been allowed, it, it's been name calling and censorship. Sorry, I've just what? gone off on one, but no, 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 do, do you know
0: no this is what I want, this
1: is what I do you want. Know, this do you know what I mean, yeah. And perhaps in the past, we could have uh, disagreements with our friends and family. Now, where we might have different view- views, um, one side of the argument is labelled as sort of nutty, idiotic, irrational, unscientific, when actually both sides of the argument have some evidence to support their side so um, I'm looking forward to the day when we get that professional courteous uh, disagreement and the ability to have disagreements in a courteous professional way because I think that that will avoid mistakes happening.
0: So I agree with everything you've just said. I just want to take it back slightly just to give the people a, a little bit of a background on on what's been going on with with, with you and your firm. Um, so I first came across you guys when I read uh, on Twitter a few things you guys have been posting as, a, as a, an organisation caught my eye with regards to the um, discrimination that was going on in the workplace and, and um, uh, you know, the general shenanigans that was going on at the time but it was the initial letter of intent that I saw uh, your firm had um, published on representing Sam White, which when I read it, I mean, it's quite extensive. I think it's about 15 pages, I think, but um, it correlated everything into one single document, uh, data and 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 the, the, the arguments, you know, for um, supporting Dr. Sam White and everything else. So it was really refreshing to see that there was an actual law firm Behind us, because there'd been nothing but tumbleweeds and, and solicitors and lawyers just being really quiet about the whole situation, which didn't fill us with, with much confidence. So you guys were straight out the uh, out the starting blocks, which was great. So, what made you want to represent Sam White initially? Did he approach you, or did you approach him? Because obviously, he was one of the first ones to to get chastised the way he was. Um, I uh,
1: I got introduced. Uh, to Sam via Heart with the Health and Recovery Team, which is a group of you'll probably know, and your um, listeners will know, it's a group of clinicians who are just put, putting forward alternatives. So I got introduced uh, via Heart, and basically Sam's views align precisely with my views, because I, I publish my views on my pub. Um, blog Um, you know uh, as far back as November 2020 I published a blog called Are the Government Acting Like a War Criminal and then I had two further blogs about the art of war in January 21 and it was those blogs were saying that our human rights weren't being observed and When the government weren't observing your uh the, the citizens' human rights, it, it's um akin to an act of war. So, Sam and my views um really did align uh well. So, um, we, we didn't need to wait, waste time uh having any discussion about the issues because we're both up, up to speed and. I think the key point about Sam's case is that everything he said in his viral video in June 21, he'd said at his five-year validation appraisal in December, um, I think it was December 20. And uh, for those of you who aren't clinicians like me, um, apparently doctors have to get a, a validation appraisal every five years and then annual ones. And so Sam had taken along to his appraisals all his concerns about masks, lockdowns, uh, social distancing, primary care being cut out, the equation, suppression of ivermectin and HCQ and zinc. And what we saw was the rush rollout of the vax. They were the key issues, and he documented it and put it in scientific papers. And his um, the, the person who passes off the appraisal is called the responsible officer, which you, you, um, listeners will know about. But uh, um, the responsible officer is another doctor. So he passed off the appraisal, approved it, yet the same Responsible officer suspended Sam in June 21 for saying exactly the same things in his appraisal, but it said for saying exactly the same things in his video, but he said uh, on his appraisal. So um, that that seemed to me not quite right. Um, so I mean that that went to the interim orders tribunal. And the um, MPTS, which is a Medical Professionals Tribunal Service, it's notionally distant from the General Medical Council, um, found in a, uh, what well, m- made an order that Sam couldn't post on social media mm-hmm. and think to do with COVID-19 or associated aspects. So I actually wrote to the panel the next day and said this would preclude Sam from uh, running for parliament, and it would also preclude him from posting a photo of a discarded face mask on the beach or as you know litter, just publicised. So could could you define what you mean better? So they didn't so we, we we went to the high court and it, it's um what the uh, justice Dove said was that before you put, put put a ban on anyone publishing anything you've got to ask yourself a question is what was published um is what the that was there evidence for what was published or was it so far unevidenced as to amount to bringing the profession into disrepute. And the example Justice Dub used was Sam's remarks on masks, saying there wasn't any evidence base for their use in non-clinical settings, non-clinical masks. So how how can you discipline someone for pointing out that there's no evidence for non-clinical use? Uh, non-clinical masks being used in non-clinical settings um sh- surely any regulated professional is entitled to point that out um so uh, that that, that uh, judgment um was delivered on 3rd of December and i think it hopefully it enabled some doctors to feel able that they could t- to speak out. And I know that some doctors who have spoke now, they're not getting the heavy hand of the GMC on their collar. And it it then helped Dr. Adil have his suspension lifted because Dr. Adil, if you remember, did the Hunger Games video in April 20 and was suspended within six weeks. Uh, That enabled him to get his suspension lifted. And if we look at uh, doctors subsequently, like Dr. David Cartland, they've not Definitely. had they, they've had not had the GMC breathing down their neck. Um, so I, I think it is important when political decisions on health are being made that doctors and clinicians, nurses, whatever cl- clinical skill you hold, should be able to speak about those things and criticise them
0: that's the whole point that, that's I mean. yeah that's that that's how we do things you, you know one person doesn't just suggest we do something we then you know if it's a good idea we, we we get a large cohort of people you do a trial you do evidence-based medicine and you know pick it apart literature reviews and you know and all that kind it, of
1: stuff it, it, it just shouldn't be controversial should it
0: no 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 that you, you want medicine to be um and science to be around debate because you, you, you're going to be looking at everyone's different Points of views, circumstances, aspects, demographics. You need people from all different walks of life to, to look at this one issue, so they can have their their versions of it. The, for things that because when you, you get that groupthink type of mentality, when you share something amongst the same a group of people that think like you, they're all going to agree with you. You, you. you, if you really want someone to
1: to tear something that, apart, that, you that, need to share. that that that's true. And I think what's happened is the debates become very polarized. And in a sense, those who are sceptical skeptical about the vaccine might overlook evidence of some of the benefits, um, uh, whatever benefits there are, um, whereas those who are in favour of the vaccine will overlook the side effects and the lack of efficacy. So I think we've, to a certain extent, uh, we've all got into our bubble over um all of this and uh, it's become very polarized and uh divisive and quite toxic the debate. And um I think I think that's part of the reason why uh doctors may not spoke now, because um they then get labelled, you know. Yeah. As this, that, and the other. So um it, it's been a bit it's been a bit of difficult time, but I don't think the political leadership in the country has helped by using terms like covidia and anti-vaxxer and so on and so forth, because uh you know, people have got genuine concerns that masks don't work, that social distancing doesn't work, that lockdown causes more harm than good, that the vax hasn't been properly trialled and isn't suitable for, you know, very many age cohorts. So I think we should be allowed to say these things without, A, A without being name called, um, but B, without... The, the long arm of a regulator feeling, feeling our collar. So um, it, it's been it, it's been a it's been a difficult time because the mainstream media and the government have imposed what they see as the settled science, and anyone who doesn't agree either that the science is settled uh, or as settled as they claim is basically Cast out, aren't they? So, so, yeah. um, we, so we saw it happen with we, we saw it happen with Dr. Steve James because when he came out shock horror and talking about um, maybe the vaccine's waning after a month and that some nurses and doctors will have immunity via infection, I think it, it was the Daily Mail that then did a hit job on him. Uh, bringing up his personal life, his family life, and all this stuff. But that's no no way to deal with the arguments, is it? Attacking the person who made them. Uh, And we've seen it with Matt Letizia, you know. um, He's made some evidence-based points about the number of footballers and elite athletes having heart problems. On and off the pitch, and he's been absolutely pillared by the press. So um, you know, if, if when we ask ourselves the question a couple of years time, why haven't more clinicians spoken up? But uh, uh, or any any person spoke up, we we just have to look at what happened uh, to those people that did speak up they they've, they've been trashed you know um, in public in in the mainstream media. so um not not many people will want that. not many people like being the spotlight anyway and, and B not people not many people will like their private life being dragged through the spotlight. So has been a very difficult time. Um, have you experienced uh, any? Have you? Go on, sorry. Sorry, Matt, just missed the question.
0: Sorry, no, it was my fault there. Um, I was just going to ask you: Did you personally experience, or the company experience, any any? Um, uh, how can I put this? Did you experience any aggro, any um, signs that you were being sort of singled out or anything like that as a company when when the word got out that you were representing Nam?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, my bins got rifled for a home. Wow! Uh, I, I, um, but you know, I, I don't lead, or well, we don't lead an exciting life. So <laughs> apart from domestic waste, bag, bag dog poo, there wasn't much to find. Uh, we've had our phones interrupted, and. Um, uh, Interestingly, we had our email interrupted and it was interrupted when I was trying to distribute a letter for the care home workers, which effectively made the point that um, care managers should abide by the law rather than the guidance. Because the guidance didn't reflect the legal position, which was everyone had the right to decline treatment without penalty, um, and it further made the point about the guidance not having religious, philosophical, all those exemptions. Mm. Uh, and that email with that attachment, I had a great deal of difficulty with. It was ve- it was very very odd, um, and um, I'm also under investigation by um, the Solicitors Regulation Authority. Uh, so, um, what 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 they're saying is that two of my tweets uh, undermine an important public health initiative, namely vaccination. And they worked a tweet about the police investigation and but a tweet about graphene being found in a vial. I mean, the problem the SRA had is that both those tweets, my tweets are factually accurate, and I can prove they're factually accurate because I can prove what the police told us. They told us they were investigating. We've got it on video. We've got an email. We've got various things to show, prove that the police were investigating the prime complaint. It was just the upper echelons squash squash complaint. And B, uh, I was involved um, in get. Uh, I was involved in the report done by Dr. Terrace uh, or commissioned by Dr. Tess Lorry, which found graphene present in the uh, SARS-CoV-2 injection vial. Um, the SRA is saying that that's misinformation because there's no author of the report. And the point I'm making back to the SRA quite strongly is the reason why there isn't an author to report to the report is f- firstly the person who wrote the report who's a uh, Oxbridge-level PhD uh, with appropriate experience she, she's got a background in the military and she was also um, concerned about her health and safety uh, following what happened to Dr. Nowak in Germany, because after he uh, produced a video on finding graphene in the vials, um, he, 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 he mysteriously or suddenly died a few days later. So the, the, the SRA are trying to hang their hat on the fact that there's no report author of the graphene report. So therefore it's misinformation. It it can't be a report. But I'm saying, well, I I, I interviewed and have met with the person who wrote the report. I know the person who commissioned report. Uh Dr. Sam White's fund paid for the report. So on what basis are these same reports made up? Um, so, are uh, you allowed to? Sorry. Yep. Yeah, so, sorry, Matt. It's all right. I've got to try and
0: jump on you here so that so I like, don't forget the questions and uh, to keep because um, I'm sure there's people screaming right. uh, questions. So, from a from a for those of us that aren't law folk, if you do submit a document, a report, or anything like that from a from an anonymous author is that still um, I understand that there are their arguments per se saying it's anonymous so how do we know it's real so how, from a law capacity is there many um, incidences where um, anonymous things get submitted that can be used in court how, how does it work from a law capacity when when you get received a document like that
1: I mean on, on the balance of probability what was there a report conducted um, on vials of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, that that's the evidential threshold that has to be met. And we've got me saying that we've got Dr. Tess Laurie saying that we haven't got the scientist saying that because he or she wants to keep their name out of it. We've we've got um, Ian Clayton saying that because he was involved. He's at Citizen Twenty Twenty. Um, And what's more, the the findings of the report line up with what the University of Almira found, uh, what the Dr. Nowak found, and what the Japanese regulator found, in that they found that in the Moderna vaccine, there was magnetic particles that led to, I think, 1.4 million doses getting trashed in japan so yeah. um um at plus we had full train of custody by of the evidence by an ex-murder squad detective so you know r- really um uh, the sra in my view uh, don't have sufficient evidential collateral to say that my tweet was misleading um, on either topic so they're, they're trying to uh put conditions on my practice um uh which I, you know i'm gonna have to challenge um they're also um not allowing me to set up another firm because i'm planning on retiring so i'm Um, bringing in a few partners, they won't authorise that new firm on the basis that I'm under investigation. Of course. But my my point back to them was the number one principle of being a lawyer is to uphold the rule of law, and the number one principle in the rule of law, after equality before the law, obviously, is presumed innocent. Mm. So, Uh, yeah um uh, so there haven't been many lawyers uh stepping forward on this and why. um you know uh if you look at what happened to me I, i've been under investigation since february um based on my twitter output which i'm quite careful about I, i've asked a lot of questions in my tweets. Um, and I make sure any tweet that isn't a question is factually accurate. Mm. So, um, yeah, interesting times. But I'm, I'm not worried about it because the facts are the facts. And I've been following the facts from, from the word go. I think when you're telling and, the truth. Probably one of the most interesting conversations I had and this person has to remain anonymous, um, but I've known him over fifty years. He told me, I think it's April 2020, and given where he works, he's in a very good position to know. He he said to me, "Oh, Phil, this is April 2020. Over the next two years, we're going to let we the British public." Are going to learn a lot about where viruses and vaccines come from and um, uh, whether there's any commonality between viruses and vaccines and who produces them. So I didn't really quiz him on that. But then in that same month, I read a paper, or it was an article on Medium about the gain of function research carried out. At Wuhan, and who funded it? And my very basic C at biology O level um, uh, scientific expertise <laughs> uh, led me to the conclusion that the spike protein had uh, furin cleavage sites on, which gave it again a gain function, which meant that it couldn't come from an animal or pangolin or bat crossover, horseshoe bat, because um it was engineered and nothing I've seen since then has led me to believe that the spike protein, what the virus, uh, has in some sense um been engineered. So uh if we know that the spike protein's been engineered and paid for for gain of function research what other stuff might have been engineered and um, accidentally or deliberately released because if we go back to SARS-CoV-1 and MERS uh, in 2002 that there was a lab leak in China um, which, which it's either SARS-CoV-1 or let, let it out into the wild. So, you know, government has funded indirectly and directly, or government agencies have funded directly and indirectly this research into viruses, gain of function, all this stuff, yet we're not allowed to talk about it. So, um, and what we, we saw in the Fauci email, that he wanted to pour cold water on any suggestion that this spike protein wasn't zoonotic. Um, But my my understanding, it's very basic, is when you match the genetic profiles of this spike protein with what was patented by Moderna in 2017, there's such an overlap that the probability is that um, the spike protein is man-made or lab-made. Yeah. Not not, not everyone agrees with that, but um, there is evidence to support it. And I think that's
0: important. Go on.
1: Matt, you, you just—I just didn't grab your question there. Sorry.
0: No, no, no. It's all right. It's—it's. It's, I'm trying not to interrupt you, um, Phil. That's—that's that's the thing. So, because I, I don't like to talk over my guests when they're here. Um, but I'm just trying to get some questions in with with everything that you're saying. Um, okay. So, you've given me some dynamite stuff, which is brilliant. Obviously. So, the first thing, obviously, have you you've have you been met by any uh, and if your, your colleagues and your peers in other law firms have they still remained the same sort of level of friendship or communication wise, or have you been kind of silently shunned from the law community at all?
1: Um, uh, I mean, I um, to be to be honest, I, I'm not a particularly sociable being or someone who networks or does small talk. I'm I'm rubbish at all that, so I <laughs> um. And call me, call me sad sacks. Call me what you want. I don't care. But I didn't actually have that many colleagues or people I call friends in the legal profession. So, um, what what other people think of me within the profession is a profound indifference. Good. It's good to hear. It's good to hear. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I'm, I, it- I, I'm not one of the people who go down to. Lost society trees and wine parties. Uh, (laughs) Never have done, never will do. So that's probably
0: why you're able to do what you do today, though. I think when you're not inside that industry, like you know, at the epicenter of it, you you kind of, when you're on the peripheries, you're able to see things, I think, a little
1: bit more clearly. Did it frustrate you? That's right. If you're outside the crowd, you get a better perspective. Plus, it... um if I don't know whether you like football, Matt. <laughs> okay, well uh, there, there was a player, no, I don't support Leicester City, but there's a player for Leicester City called Christian Fox. And his Twitter handle was um no fox given. Hmm. And that's pretty much um the way I've got them. Approach things about what other people think about what I'm saying or doing. I'm not really that bothered because I know that I, I, well, I know two things A, that there's evidence on which to base my conclusions, and B, that my conclusions might be erroneous in full or in part. But um that doesn't uh disentangle me from airing my views. And mm. uh in my view, there's more evidence to support my conclusions than there are to support opposite conclusions. But you know, evidence is fluid, it changes. So but uh, I'm not That's seeing it. anything, I'm not seeing anything at the moment that suggests that. Say someone like the MHRA went about their task of giving emergency use authorization to the vaccine. I don't see any evidence that they went about their task with rigor. Hmm. So, is it is true? they yeah, gone. Is it
0: true? Sorry, is it true? Because I had a conversation with with the doctor yesterday, who I'm, who I'm going to be getting on this week. I posed a question that, um, for us to be able to roll out the jab under emergency youth authorization, there can't be an, an alternative that that would potentially do the same. So for them to be able to roll out the, the jab the way that they did, there couldn't have been an alternative medicine that was already out, that could have been um, relabeled or renamed, you know, re yeah. reaffined, which is why there was such a suppression of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because they, they were cheaper alternatives. Uh- now, that particular doctor said that was an American thing. Is that true? For I thought it was an English um, law thing as well. Is, is that true or not?
1: Uh, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on medicine authorization, but um, I look at it this way, that HCQ and zinc and ivermectin there appears to be data in from the clinic, i.e. from patients, that these two um, drugs work, Uh, particularly if you give them an early onset of the disease or prophylactically. But if we look at what happens to HCQ and zinc, in order to knock that out the race, I had a recovery trial in NHS hospitals, I hasten to add, yeah. where, they dose, where they dose patients at 2,400 mg on day one of the recovery trial, yet the standard dosage is at 200. And I think if you look in the British Formula A Book, it says something like the safe dosage being eight hundred. So yeah, um, it it's not surprising that however many people were killed on the recovery trial because they gave the wrong dose. And when we went to the police with this, we took along a person, not a journalist, as it happens, very sensible, you know person able to evaluate evidence she said she'd been taking HCQ for another condition for 15 years and was therefore very well tolerant of it of it um and she said if she'd had 2400 dose it would hospitalize her hmm. so we, we've got HCQ getting knocked out of the race with a high dose but we've also got People writing to the principal investigators, professors Landry and Horby, allegedly or apparently uh, before the trial, saying that you've got the dose wrong, and that they don't deal with that question properly. So, and then we've got a number of papers in like the New England Journal, I think, of Medicine, maybe one other publication like Lancet, which have turned out to be fraudulent about HDQ. So that, that's HDQ, They appear to be knocked out of the race uh, in a trial that was directly or indirectly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it's the same thing with in At Liverpool University, we had Professor Hill flip-flopping on recommending it and we've got emails saying that he would recommend it. And then Tess Lorry puts him on the spot on, on video saying that in terms his funders have lent on him to change his recommendation. So the two drugs that are competition to the vaccine get knocked out of the race. But if we look at just one thing, the safety profiles of both, I think Ivermectin's been registered on VigiAccess, which is a WHO database for adverse events since 1969, and Ivermectin since 1994. And they're both extremely safe medications. They, they don't produce many adverse events. At, And if doctors are supposed to do no harm, then um, the first thing to look at is safety profile. And the safety profile of both HCQ and zinc and ivermectin when used at the correct dose is excellent. Uh, We we could have an argument about efficacy, but I think the people from uh, the Indian state, Uttar Pradesh had 800 million people in that state, a good proportion of them used ivermectin, and they had about 200 deaths, similar to Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, the clinical data's there to support its use, the safety data's there, but both get knocked out of the race in favour of something that's only been trialled uh. In a very short period of time in 2020, has no follow-up studies available, safety follow-up studies, and with the mRNA is a completely new mode of action untrialed on the human population. So it does seem curious that the MHRA, who after all are tasked with patient safety, making sure that What's on the market is safe, choose something that's completely untrialed and untested at population level, the mRNA, and has got very limited safety data. When both Ivermectin and HCQ and zinc do have for safety data, because it's sat there on Vidia Access since 1968 and 94 from memory, but both are very safe um, drugs as far as I know. So that, that, I think you're right. Uh, It is curious that tried and tested, albeit for other indications, are jettisoned in favour of new and untried. And maybe uh, the safe and effective, we'd say, HCQ and zinc and ivermectin had to be taken out of the competition because if they were still in the competition, there's no emergency, is my understanding, because if you've got a drugs to treat a new condition that's circulating in the nation, apparently, SARS-CoV-2, if there's drugs that are safe and effective, you haven't got an emergency and if you haven't got an emergency you can't get emergency use approval i think that's the argument matt both here and in america mm. but um I- i'm not 100 sure on that but i think emergency use authorization is a contingent on there not being any other medications available
0: that that's how i read it i think i think it was buried deep in the yeah, uh, public right. somewhere um, uh, under the, I think it was section 40, 45 C or D when it's talking about pandemic um, and when to isolate people and things like that, where if people go around and read that, it reads very different than the Coronavirus Act. But um, Lord Sumption, before he got quite on board with, with all of the, the pro jab side of things, he, he gave a, a speech to a law firm, uh, a law uh, faculty on YouTube. And he was um, saying that the Coronavirus Act was basically bastardised from the Public Health and Disease Control Act, the Terrorism Act and loads of other different acts, because they can't supersede those acts are already out there, without it going through Parliament to be voted on, it was easier to just create the Coronavirus Act, taking bits of these things to fit the kind of what they wanted to do. But when you delve deeper into these sections, it's actually quite specific where it says you can only isolate, you should only quarantine people with symptoms. Um, who were presented as being unwell. Um, They only took, uh, but they'd left that part out. So they they kind of bastardised lots of different um, acts to to, to push the coronavirus act through, but we know that they did it before Easter, where there was no one sitting just before we were all locked down, so there was no one to oppose it. So it was very sneakily done, if everyone's aware of how they did it. It's it's very, very cleverly done. But I wanted to um, bounce onto this one real quick. So you were involved in the Hammersmith case, right? The one that um, received quite a lot of attention because it had a case number, a crime number, and all this kind of stuff. And I remember seeing a plethora of stories saying the the crime number is relevant. It's not uh, statements from police officers saying stop. Um, you know, adding details to this to the case, and then all of a sudden, um, it just seemed to stop. So obviously, you're the guy in the know. Can you tell us what kind of happened? We all saw the video, the the, the initial second video that Mr Sexton did, which to be fair, what, what he's been doing is amazing, but for some reason he's just not been getting as much traction as I thought he would, or is he, and we're just not being exposed to that?
1: So, I mean, a, a criminal complaint was made on December the 20th, which encompass, I verbalized it, took me about three hours, And it was around serious misconduct in public office in relation to the unreliable tests, the exaggerated material risk from SARS-CoV-2, the toxic psychology applied to the nation which um, impacted their mental health, uh, suppression of available and safe therapeutics, and a negligent rollout of the jab, as well as harmful MPIs like masking. So I went through it all, chapter and verse, and we got issued two crime numbers, one with a nine at the end and one with a five at the end. I don't quite know what happened to one with a five at the end. And contrary to what full fact said, we didn't hand in thousands of pages of documents. In fact, the police officer who issued the crime reference numbers said don't hand in any documents because they'll only get lost. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, mm. yeah. uh, any document related to government criminality might get lost. What does that bring me in mind, um <laughs> uh? i time at the home office but anyway so what what happened on before christmas about 23rd i got a a a a secure upload facility from the met where i was able to upload documents and in in you know there, there were thousands of documents uploaded um and then on the 5th of january mark sexton went to the Hammersmith and added to the complaint on the 28th of January went again with the HCQ piece and then I think on the 13th of February we went again with the uh, graphene report and at every time we went to the police station we were told by the CID officers assigned to the case that they were investigating it and that they had pages of notes on the system. So we were told that literally every time. And then on about the 20th of February, I was forwarded an email from one of the detectives assigned which appeared to indicate that they were investigating. So on the 22nd of February, Uh, the Deputy Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police issued a very misleading statement because what she said was, A, we never investigated it, but that's in direct contradiction to what we were told, and B, uh, that the crime complaint only related to the vaccine when it didn't. So... Uh, we've now got um, complaints with the uh, off, uh, Independent Office for Police Complaints against uh, the Deputy Commissioner um, and various other uh, top dogs in, in the Met for, you know, uh, misleading the public and not doing the job investigating but it was a it was a bit it was all a bit weird because the very day crested the dick resigned i was called up from someone in the in the office senior office within the met asking what did i want to happen so i said what i want to happen is that those investigating just be allowed to get on with the job and those in charge should get out the way, is basically what I said. And then that evening Commissioner Dick resides. So that was all a bit odd. And then when we get the Sue Gray report and the Met, the Met don't appear to have applied the law, even handedly and that the junior civil servants get the bulk of the fines and Boris Johnson gets a free pass. So if if the Met Police can't apply the law in an even-handed manner, that is really serious because in the UK, notionally and theoretically, but it's an important principle, everyone's equal before the law. So if Boris Johnson's getting off with stuff, then the whole foundation starts to crumble if other people who are more junior to him aren't. So it it's the same it's a strange situation. For me, it's not really a a political issue in that the Labour Party have been as much complicit in this as Conservative and that they've cheerleaded, you know, lockdown vaccine. And the unions, again, have um, fought for lockdowns, masking, vaccination, so on. So uh, those of us who are a bit sceptical about everything don't really have uh, either a union or a political party to turn to because yeah. um, uh, they've all backed the government. So it, it's been a strange time. And, and you know, at the same time the police stuff was going on, mm-hmm. I was getting calls from police officers saying that, you know, they were getting emails from their local commissioner saying that the the police were going to have to be jabbed. So um, my impression of the team we spoke to at Hammersmith was that they were switched on regular police officers who were going about the job. Mm. So either they were lying to us which I don't think they were or they got lent on. And I think they got lent on, is my conclusion.
0: So, where is the case now then? What's happening with it? Is that it? Is it, is it? It's done? So, dusted? Uh, what... uh,
1: it, it goes up to the independent office of police complaints uh, on whether the police have failed to investigate and um, given out misleading information. And then, subject to that outcome we then uh, review what we're doing but part of what Dr Sam wanted from the word go is if the police um, didn't investigate then we'd issue or launch a private prosecution Right so um, that's not a what will happen, but that's in the back of our minds. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So what? where do you, so how long do you think, this is, I mean, this all seems like uh, stalling tactics to me um, that they're doing. Um, they're just going to keep kicking this can down the road, aren't they? Until eventually someone has to pick it up. Um, I had a gentleman on the other day.
1: Yeah. Who unf- I mean, I think, I think we're heading in. Uh, the thing with all this is, Something left field could happen at any time, which um, alters everyone's thinking. But I think we're heading into politically unstable times, because if Boris Johnson has to resign over Partygate, and surely Keir Starmer has to resign over Currygate, because both both issues are. Pretty much the same. So we'll, we'll have a situation where we potentially don't have any leaders of the two main parties whilst our new leaders are getting elected. And then we're also facing uh, raging inflation, possible interest rate rises, and quite a bumpy economic time with food prices and food shortages so
0: who knows what's going to happen well we can speculate Can definitely speculate i think that's that's one thing we we can do um so since you've been you've been kind of um highlighted as supporting the the small voice in the communities and the and the population have you have you been approached by any other doctors any other sort of people experiencing any discriminations or to do with the the current narrative that's being pushed?
1: Uh, I mean for me, the care home workers are the backbone of the United Kingdom. They they do the hardest, well physically demanding job, mentally demanding job, unsocial hours, uh, low pay, and they, they don't work through the NHS, so they don't get that glitter that comes with that. So um, you know, there weren't that many people there for the care home workers no. when they had to go through their draft mandate. Uh, but um we we've actually got uh about 120 claims in at the tribunal for care home workers, but as part of the tribunal claim we're suing Savage Javid personally, as well as Ian Trenholm from CQC personally, as well as the CQC and DHSC. And it's a very simple claim, which is under the Equality Act, Section 110, a third party should not put pressure on an employer to discriminate. And we say that the DHSC operating guidance for care homes, in failing to have any religious, philosophical, or disability or gender-related exemptions, did discriminate. And that the care home registered managers, when they came to interpret what clinical reasons for non-vaccination meant, relied on the guidance, which we say was discriminatory, and which led to the care home workers' dismissal. So um that has been that case has been uh, transferred to Leeds, which geography is not a strong point, but I think it's okay. uh, probably halfway between where the C are located in Newcastle and where the DHSC is located in London. So, um, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, The time I'm bringing a case against government ministers uh, or government minister and the leader or the head of the CQC is the same time I'm getting it investigated by the SRA. And the last time I got investigated by my regulator, was in 2002-03, when I brought a claim against a cabinet minister for bullying their staff and not paying them. That cabinet minister has to remain nameless, um, settled the claim the night before the hearing. I was told by that cabinet minister's solicitor that the cabinet minister was spitting feathers about having to settle, and that I should be careful. And within the week, uh, I got a letter from the Law Society, or the SRA, or whoever was regulating solicitors back then, saying that my firm was going to have a forensic accountant audit it, which I've not met a solicitor, either before or since, who's ever had one of those. Anyway, the accountant came down for two days, went through my books with a fine tooth comb, and then said, I didn't find anything. And he said, I knew I wouldn't. And I said, but how, how do you know you wouldn't find anything? He said, well, you said park your car next to mine in the car park. And when I saw that you drove a day Ulanos, I knew you wouldn't <laughs> be on the make. And I said, well, that's precisely right. Not, I, I don't know much money. Um, you know, that, that's precisely right. And he says, he says the, uh, the, the forensic accountant said, I know when I'm I know when I'm gonna find something is when there's high-end BMWs and Mercedes benz in the car park. So yeah, I mean. You know, for 20 years, I've had a spotless career. But they've both been bookended by a when I took a cabinet minister on. Then a week later, I get an SRA investigation, which came to nothing. I start taking uh, Savage Avid on. I've got the regulator on my back. So, you know, uh, Funny that. It, it, of course of course it might all be unrelated but um it's I think you know as well as i
0: do coincidences how many coincidences need to happen before you need to start thinking you know this is either genuine or there's there's a definite pattern here but you're not the first person to to be singled out in a capacity like that where they just they're just trying i think it, i don't know whether it's them just trying to let you know that they're there they're watching and they're just kind of flicking to see if they find anything, shake the tree, see if anything falls out that they can run with. Um, but normally people, when they're telling the truth, there's there's not much dirt that they can find on them because they're they're truthful people. Um, and the, the truth will always will always find a way, no matter how dark
1: it is, to be honest.
0: Um okay, yeah, that's so
1: that's why I'm relaxed about the SRA. Because uh I'm just I'm just my witness statement. Which will be probably well over hundred paragraphs and well over a thousand pages and documents, and if and it will explain how I believe that there's been criminal conduct. So if the SRA wants to take that to the High Court then we'll we'll let the High Court determine whether or not the Tweets for which I'm under investigation are evidence-based or not. And I'm confident that they are. So I I don't quite know what the SRA is doing, but what, what they're not doing is involving me in the investigation. So at no point, and they did, the GMC did exactly the same thing with Sam White. They don't come and talk to you. They conduct an investigation into you without even talking to you. So I, I think one of the things coming out of this when we're looking at a new regulatory framework is that regulators have got to be inquisitorial not adversarial so they need to just find out the facts rather than take sides so yeah and I mean I mean we've got people like doc doctor yeah, there's a lot of doctors in still in difficulty out there um uh yeah last week um i got a determination from the at GMC because we're still going on about Dr. Hillary Jones and his um, inaccuracies on live television. But uh, apparently, according to the GMC, um, the mRNA had been fully tested. And then they sort of say, but it was on animals in 2003. And they don't say what happened to the animals so you know uh people like dr hillary jones are given a pretty much a free pass by the gmc and any in- inaccuracy we can all be inaccurate you know but ha- a- any inaccuracy um excused and in the original determination on dr hillary jones that, that the gmc said the yeah. investigator said that it's not the GMC's role to intervene if um, a doctor, if Doctor Jones has offended you. Well, it wasn't a case of being offended. He, he got up on television and said words to the effect that the mRNA vaccine had been used before, um, with the implication that it had been used in humans when. As far as I know, it's the first population-wide rollout. So, he lied, basically. <laughs> he lied. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah um, you, you must have a deeper defamation budget than me, but Matt. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think if you had to go and prove the accuracy of your statement that he lied, there is evidence of... <laughs> On which your conclusion is based yeah because we've got it all documented so and this is I, you know this is what i mean because i do a lot of people i mean you know we've probably got friends and family whose, whose views are influenced by what they hear on the bbc and ITV and daily mail and all the rest of it so um but you know that those people have got a part to play in firstly not allowing other viewpoints to be heard but secondly uh in labeling those with other viewpoints i, I was labeled by the bbc a conspiracy theorist <laughs> but I've not i've not said anything was theoretical it's all based on evidence so it, if it, if a theory's got evidence to support it it's a hypothesis isn't it i mean my science isn't that good but that's my understand so but mm. all these lazy ter- terms are thrown out by conspiracy theorists when actually, People who are saying there's going to be a vaccine passport got labelled as conspiracy theorists, but they were just people who had an accurate prediction based on the evidence. Stay so. funny. That. So, what what what
0: advice would you give to people? Because I want <clears throat> to. I'm conscious of your time today, so <clears throat> um, I've got two questions I, oh. yeah, on, I then, want that. to ask you. I've got loads more to ask. I'll get you back on at yep. uh, a later day. We can delve a little bit more into the nitty-gritty. I just wanted to, to give people an overview of who you are and what you've been doing. What advice would you give to people? Because um, the NHS 100K crew, I'm going to be getting them on to, to chat about what they've been doing, but they've been dealing and they get approached daily by staff still experiencing discrimination um, in all care settings and people going into hospital settings to have procedures done, being denied treatment unless they take a PCR test. With the withdrawal of the the um, the guidance, I think it was on the twenty seventh of May they redu- they withdrew all the coronavirus uh, kind of PPE guidance very quietly. Um, what advice would you give to people at the moment that are still experiencing um, sort of discrimination? It was good that you pointed out the um, I think was it the he- the Equality Act. So that was a that was a nice nugget. But what advice would you give to people who are still ex- experiencing? Um, discrimination with regards to wearing masks before they enter the place, proving tests and PCR tests and all that kind of stuff. I mean, are they still, are people still allowed to, um, Um, enforce those types of things?
1: Yeah. I mean, it happened to me and uh, I complained to the GMC and they didn't do anything because, um, I had COVID. I recovered. And then, I was due to have an operation, and it got cancelled because I refused to have the test. So I, I think if I think there's two issues, aren't there? One is the masking, and um, I, 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 I've had difficulty with masking uh, because the NHS's position on masking doesn't seem to be particularly clear. Because if the NHS is saying that a mask is PPE, then it has to be Category 2, biohazard, which none of the masks uh, I've seen issued in the NHS meet that description. So if they're saying it's PPE, well, it isn't. If they're saying it's a medical device to prevent infection spread, then that needs your consent. Um, so the, the 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 argument about not wearing a face covering is that it's a non-pharmaceutical intervention, and like any medical intervention, pharmaceutical or non-pharmaceutical, it, it needs your consent. So the, the first point is, it, uh, I don't consent. And the second point is, you cannot deny me access to a service because I've withheld consent because that amounts to undue influence. And where one party like the NHS is in a position to influence another, it shouldn't use undue influence in trying to get consent by saying if you don't consent, you're not coming in. So Mm. uh, there's... there's there's some perfectly sound arguments on masks based on consent. And then the second issue is if you suffer from a disability or you've got a past history of sexual abuse, which um it is mainly women, you know, uh, who've been raped in the past predominantly. Um obviously men do suffer sexual abuse, but um, there, there's an argument about it being indirectly discriminatory there because uh, a lot of women who can't wear masks is because when they've been raped they've had a hand put over their mouth or sock put in their mouth. They're, they're just examples we, we've heard about. So um, there, there's some good arguments on face masks. I mean, the, the practical problem is Um, If you don't get in, you're then going to have to sue them. It's a small claim in the small claims court. Um, It's a lot of hassle and hard work. Uh, It's not going to be worth instructing a lawyer because of the value of the claim. So it's a difficult right to enforce. Um, Similarly, with the LFT and the PCR test, that is down to informed consent, and if you don't give consent to being tested, then any withdrawal of services or treatment is the application of undue influence. That that would be the argument because you, uh, if you're trying to get someone to test. Uh, for a non-clinical reason, i.e. to be able to access services, then you've got to consent to that test and not penalise anyone who doesn't consent. So um, the arguments around testing is on consent. But the, 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 the problem is um, the NHS seems to be having two standards of informed consent, one for all things non-COVID-related, where you have to get your patient's permission before you perform an intervention. And if they don't want an intervention, you have to respect that decision. So that standard of informed consent is being applied by the NHS, as far as I know, in relation to all non-COVID conditions. But when it comes to COVID, you have to wear a mask and yet you have to have a test. But we don't get a test for tuberculosis before we go into hospital or for flu or for any of these other things. So it doesn't make sense, does it? I, I, I think they've just fallen into a habit of masking and testing when they've forgotten about the first principles which is the patient gives the nhs consent and if they don't consent it doesn't mean you can take away services that that patient paid for
0: so does that work for uh, a um does that work for a a private so a private landlord for example so a pub ownership shops and so forth um don't they get to stipulate because they're the private tenants on the conditions on on what people can well, have to adhere to to enter their premise? Like, you know, you have to wear smart shoes. You
1: can't wear trainers in certain pubs. Uh, the arguments on service providers is. is partly around. Equality Act, not discriminating against people who can't have these interventions. And it's partly about, uh, and not about seeing the argument advanced, a entertainment premises or hospitality premises shouldn't be trying to influence people to have a medical intervention because they're not your doctor. Mm. And by allowing access to that premises, being conditional on having that, medical intervention there's an argument about illegality uh because um a third party shouldn't try and influence anyone to have a medical intervention and if they do influence someone it can invalidate consent and the case on that was the i think christian scientist whose daughter Uh, wasn't given a blood transfusion because, they said, the mother had influenced her not to have a blood transfusion as a Christian scientist, but it found that that amounted to undue influence. Um, And when they asked her directly, she had consented, she did want the blood transfusion. So the same principles can be applied. If you're a third party, and advancing non-clinical reasons, or even clinical reasons to have an intervention, those reasons, if they come from a position of undue influence, can invalidate the consent. And, you know, where you want to be a customer of a hospitality venue, they're in a position to be able to influence your decision by saying that access is conditional on you having this intervention. But there's only two people who decide. Well, there's only one person who decides whether to have the intervention. That's the patient. Mm -hmm. And there's only one person who needs consent. That's the clinician. And the patient should take on board the clinician's advice but is able to recommend it. And the clinician isn't able to obtain consent validly if a third party has pressurised the patient into making a particular decision. And I think we need to just return to these principles. And, oh, just by the way, on um, Yeah, I'm flitting all over the place. No, don't, worry,
0: the, don't on, worry, don't worry.
1: Don't worry. On, on the testing, I mean, this is why I thought it would be over long ago that the Portuguese Court of Appeal said as far back as November 20 that any testing done without being overseen by a clinician was a breach of human rights, particularly where the um, test results led to some deprivation of liberty. And I think that's what we've forgotten here. Um, All these tests, not only by law, but also according to the patient information leaflet, should be conducted by doctors. And you shouldn't be testing people who don't have symptoms because all the patient information leaflets talks about clinician oversight and having symptoms present. But all these tests to go abroad to get into these venues, they don't have clinician oversight. And most people take the tests don't have any symptoms. So not only are you breaching human rights, you're also breaching what's said on the patient information leaflet and we've got the inserts from anova and they say exactly that. Not only do they say exactly that, they say that the test can't differentiate between uh, SARS-1 and SARS-2. and So, you know, we're, 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 it, what's happened is that testing has become normalised. That's why it, you know, having testing take place in schools without a clinician being present, uh, without parents being present, um, that's difficult, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. that you're sort of breaching the kids' human rights on so many levels. And not only that, but you're expecting teachers to oversee these procedures which are not qualified for want to do or anything else but it it seems to be normalizing a medical intervention at a place where the parents aren't involved and I don't I don't think that can be a healthy development
0: well their justifications for doing it are that they're just following the government guidance uh, and then the government guidance have Basically, Turman has said it's down to the individual businesses. So uh, the government have done a very good thing, which is what they'd always do. They're, they're non committal to, to things, but they're also not basically no one's liable. So if anything does go up, who's liable? Is it the business or is it the government for, for instilling the guidance on the business? So it's 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 not clear ground for anybody, really.
1: And I think that's one of the big problems. Um, there was a case in 2021, actually, involving the Home Office, but it it refers to just as an illustration the Gillick competency guidance, and at paragraph 36 it made it quite clear that where there's a conflict between the guidance and the law, you should follow the law, and in all these things we've had. People blindly following guidance without even thinking whether the guidance breaches any fundamental legal rights or human rights around informed consent, privacy, and all these other things. we just people just using guidance to facilitate a decision that might be unlawful and that's that's what we're going to the tribunal for on the care home workers because care homes owners dismissed the care home workers based on the guidance because in the regulations clinical reasons for vaccination wasn't defined and it was only defined in the guidance There's a simple point about clinical reasons for non-vaccination. There can only be one clinical reason not to be vaccinated. And that's because the patient hasn't consented. That is the definition, in my view, of clinical reasons. Because Mm. the only clinical reason for non-vaccination is the patient hasn't consented. Yes, there may be underlying medical conditions that might explain that, but there may not. So, and that point wasn't made clear in the guidance that everyone has the right to decline any medical intervention for any reason without penalty. And that's a standard of informed consent that the NHS operates to, uh, or should operate to. But care homes were in the ridiculous situation where a care home resident had their right not to be vaccinated respected, but a care home worker lost their job. So how, how mm-hmm. can you have two standards of informed consent in one premises? It doesn't make sense. You've got the law's the law, there can only be one standard. And the standard is you're free to decline any medical intervention without being penalised. That's the standard. So I think the, I think you're right, Matt. The guidance and the slavish adherence to the guidance has caused a lot of problems, and that that it's a guidance that's um, the subject of the legal case. Uh, for the care home workers, that should, I think we've got a date in August where we're picking the test cases. So so this could open uh, the floodgates then for, for all of the
0: 60-odd thousand care workers that were dismissed?
1: No, no, no it, it'll only, the floodgates are only open for three months from dismissal and then the floodgates... A slam shut. So any care home worker who doesn't put a claim in within three months uh, loses their right to claim. And I mean, what we can't forget about the care home workers is that November the eleventh was the day they were dismissed. And I think the guidance, uh, I think the regulations, and the NHS mandate went out the window February the fourteenth effective of first for memory so it was only in place three months and then let, let everyone had an about turn so you know I, but look for care homework workers. there's some horrific stories you know mm-hmm. one care worker, single mother had five kids um one of the kids was totally dependent on her for a disability and didn't want to get the jab just in case she was injured. But how, how how can anyone have any right to say that decision is the wrong one or is a selfish one or anything else? That that decision was absolutely right for her. And we've had plenty of other cases, you know, involving religious reasons, all sorts of reasons for not getting jabbed, including it, but I don't agree with the state having it reaching my bodily autonomy, yet they all lost their jobs and these people worked the socks off during lockdown uh, and the care homes, you know, they weren't getting visitors so they were having residents who might have found not having visitors for that length of time very difficult and the care workers looked after these people. And some of them were on tears, in tears on their final day, because they were saying, Yeah, you know, I don't see people I look after as residents or as patients. I see them as almost like friends and family. Cause I've been looking after them for five, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Some of them have been residents. And but I've got very close to them. They're actually in tears on the day they lost their job. And that so, can't be right, can it? It, it, it? If a vaccine is supposed to prevent transmission, and it doesn't, why? Why should anyone be fired for not for not for not being injected with something that doesn't work to prevent transmission? So it. This is it my last question change, Matt.
0: very much so yeah <laughs> i think that must be the understatement of the uh, of the year but so one last question yeah um and, Ma- and that's rush. yeah the last question last question do you think okay coming out of all of this now as, as, a, as a as a population as a nation we should potentially look at maybe having a constitution. Not a trick question. Not a trick question. I think it, it, more to do with the fact that there's there's been a lot of, um, the Americans have fallen back heavily on their constitution throughout these last two years. Uh, and it's, it's stopped them from, from being sucked into some really bad situations. So from our perspective, the last two years has shown us that we don't really have any protection. We have the Human Rights Act and we have Equality Acts and, and other bits and pieces, but they can easily be Superseded, or or doctored, or changed, or not adhered to at the government's whim. So, to, from a form of protection for us as, as a population, do you think we should maybe try and push for for a constitution of of some kind? I know we have the Bill of Rights, but you know something more concrete.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there's firstly, we do have a constitution. It, it's just not written down in any document. Uh, and certainly, we do have rights, but they're a bit scattered. But I, I'd agree with you. We need some sort of constitution that's written down in one place, and we need some sort of uh, similar to what the Americans have got in their amendments. Uh, rights that, like particularly, freedom of speech, uh, bodily autonomy, uh, uh, that critical to. We need those enshrined in somewhere um saying that a government can't take these away from you no matter how to die of the emergency. But but uh, so I, I'd agree with you we coming out of this we need a constitution that uh is written down in one place and easy to understand, but also adaptable. And we need like 10 absolute human rights, you know, or as absolute as you can make them, including freedom of speech, bodily autonomy, and the rest of it. Because the fact that they're not in one place, and you have to track down your human rights, fundamental legal right to bodily autonomy into crime treatment. That, that's in Montgomery. Yeah, it's all scattered around in various case laws. So we, we, we do need a one-page, ten-point, these are your rights, and then we need some sort of constitutional document um, in one place. But I, I think the Bill of Rights or a, a statement of what our rights are is most pressing and the fact Mm. that rights can't be taken away by any government no matter Mm. what what the emergency is yeah well there you go that's a future project for you once you've
0: uh, defeated the government and their current crimes against humanity then you can start going towards to writing out a um a new constitution and then you can then you can retire i'll
1: allow you to retire after you've done that all right (laughs) <laughs> I, I, to, to, to be honest Matt I'd rather watch paint drive and write the constitution <laughs> um, but yeah yeah, I will contribute ideas anyway That's thank it. you very much for having me on I hope I have no awesome thank great. you I really appreciate coming Ram on and on time. time so yeah,
0: yeah, take care happy have
1: a good to day on any other time
0: Brilliant. Thank you. I will get you back on. So it'd be nice to get some updates and what's been going on with the, the care. Home OK, thank you
1: very much, Matt.
0: No worries, Phil. You take care, buddy. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thank Bye-bye. you. Cheers.
1: Bye now.